A tale as old as time. Long before the emergence of film noir and the cinematic conscience. Long before hard-boiled novels, before silent film vamps, before the puritanical notions of witchcraft took root. Back all the way to early mythology, more formative biblical times. For as long as men have been telling stories, women have been around to lead them straight into darkness. The femme fatale occupies a titanic position in the history of cinema, especially in the first half of the 20th century. She goes by many names and takes even more forms, the chanteuse, the fallen woman, the boss's wife. Sometimes she is wicked, sometimes she's just in a bad way, invariably she is tied to the downfall, or at least the temptation, of a male protagonist. In narrative terms, she is a disruptive force. Trouble with a capital T. And she deserves every bit as much credit as the private detective does for cementing film noir as one of the great classic genres. More credit, even, because this isn't an archetype beholden to one singular Bogart-sized star. The femme fatale belongs to a whole pantheon of legendary actresses, each setting the screen on fire in their own unique way. So, grab a drink and settle in. For the next 24 episodes, we'll be examining some of cinema's grand dames, tracing the evolution of the femme fatale from silent cinema to today, looking for footprints from designer heels deep in the celluloid dirt. What's your new book about? A detective. He falls for the wrong woman. What happens? She kills him. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you over the warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. You're not too smart, are you? <laughs> I like that in a man. Hate is a very exciting emotion. I hate you so much that I think I'm going to die from it. What have we done to each other? What will we do? I'm not apologizing for what I did. I'm apologizing for what I didn't do. Silencio. Hello and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films, then talk about them. I'm one of those friends, Fred Felzer, joined by my friend... Kristen Johnson. And tonight we're back first episode of the new season and as you can no doubt tell from the intro we're shifting lanes time to move on from the private detective and take a closer look at the other classic noir archetype the femme fatale how are you feeling about this tristan it's about damn time <laughs> we were so male heavy for the we were for a long while that's a lot of episodes on the private detective and not a lot of lady detectives as we know uh so i'm i'm ready for a shift in focus in execution, what we wound up with was uh, very testosterone forward, and mm-hmm. uh, it's it's good to to flip things around here and the other classic archetype of the genre and and take a look at what the ladies been up to. Yeah, I think uh, this is this is going to take us in a really different direction than we did with the private detective, who's got such a clearly defined role. And yes, there's riffs on it, variations on it, but but he's still always perpetually functioning as almost almost just outside the narrative, observing it, uh, acting as a, a surrogate for, for the viewer coming in. Whereas the femme fatale 
as, as mentioned in the intro, she's she's a disruptive force in, in the narrative. And uh and and I'm really excited to get to to pick that role apart throughout yeah. the episodes to come. Well, I mean, I think it comes back to just, you know, the Shamus is defined by the job, right? The objective. Like that is he he is an and you know, he because he is generally a, a male figure is a, has a specific narrative function that is uh, that is driving the, the plot forward and is objective based. But the like you said, the femme fatale, she just comes in to throw throw matches and see what catches fire. Yeah, uh, and and we we spent a long while trying to define the the detective uh, in, in noir terms specifically because the private detective wasn't a new uh, a new phenomenon he just took on a certain shape when when we get to film noir and we, and we spent the season trying to to pin that down uh, the same is kind of true for the the femme fatale she's this is this is not a new archetype per se uh, it's it's older than the detective by by uh, centuries, right? But it, it's uh, undeniably noir is that that lens through which the femme fatale passes through when she ends up defining the genre as much as it defines her. Yeah, and because it is definitely drawing from back to a biblical tradition of Adam and Eve, um, but there's something I think generally more malicious about the femme fatale right like especially in classic noir that she is she is causing trouble not by happenstance but because she wants something and because of society because of the Hayes code a variety of factors the way that she is able to achieve goals especially in the 40s and 50s is through her feminine wiles and through manipulation of men to um, take the more active steps in a process. She's got a, a, a certain command of her sexuality that, uh, that she's able to, to use to achieve whatever, whatever ends she might have. And sometimes they're, sometimes they are really malicious and sometimes she's not, the femme fatale is not always the, the villain here necessarily sometimes sometimes she's very much a victim also of of uh it, it depends on how the the movie's going to cast her i know we True. know that much going in but inevitably she's she, she is a an instrument of at, at the very least temptation for our detective very true. And you're right. Malicious isn't the right word to encompass the full spectrum of what we're going to see over these these episodes but uh, but it is i do think it comes back to like the changeover that happens within the genre is um, is more the Lady Macbeth figure, right? And I guess that is still a tradition that that goes back hundreds of years. But the movement from passive to active in the downfall of the male figure that it's no longer simply there's a beautiful lady over there, and just men go, you know, men lose their minds when that happens. To she is. Like you said, she is she is aware of her sexuality and she is using it to achieve her ends, whatever it may cost the male protagonist. So I, I like that you mentioned Lady Macbeth because she's she certainly stands out as a as 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 a, as a uh, canonical femme fatale. 
figure, right? Like there's some, uh, and and you can go back to, um, you can go back to Circe or Medea, or uh, you can go you can go far far older back to Greek mythology, um, or you can go to to uh, more modern literary examples. But there is something uh, there is something so so different that we start to get once um, once uh, the film industry is alive and thriving, and uh, and then that kind of morphs into noir. And we're going to spend the, our first episode is going to lay a little bit of foundational groundwork. But what do you think changes with film? So not just even like noir, but more generally, not even what... noir. Just starting like like what what does film do? I feel like there's something about to me about that, just having the power of the the human face and the power of of intimacy that the screen brings to these stories whereas you know you're seeing shakespeare uh on performed on stage but you're still at a distance and it's sure. not there's a chain in what you can communicate internally by by looking at someone close up like that where you don't have to spell it all out where there's room for nuance and there's room for motives to remain murkier they don't have to be they don't have to be announced to the audience they can all of a sudden just kind of live beneath the surface uh in, on screen and uh, and you know old, it's not like it's not like a lot of classic hollywood films are renowned for subtlety but uh but still compared to um compared to what mediums we've been used to for for storytelling uh it it's it's a big shift no, I think that's an interesting point. And I think also just it allows room for glamour, right? It allows room for both in the modern and the classical sense of glamour that that yeah, it is that's that is beguiling on. and that it is, you know, it, it is enough, uh, that, like you said, the ability to, the ability of cinematic language to use the face as a tool in close-up allows you to experience that connection in a way that theater cannot do that fiction cannot do and it is you know especially with an assumed male gaze right like director cinematographer writer all of them are writing to the effect of when a man looks at this woman that is the assumed audience of a lot of this you jump in here uh, and and steer me away if you think i'm i'm off base but to the the first half of the 20th century in cinema, roughly, I, I feel like is much kinder in some ways to its female stars, where they can, there are the, the, the classic actresses that you think of when you pull from the, the 30s and 40s uh, are, are cemented in consciousness in a, in a way that I, that I think actresses start struggling to to find except for you know your your Audrey Hepburns but but like at a certain point the Joan Crawfords and the uh, and the Marlena Dietrichs and the Barbara Stanwyck's and these these classic actresses that got really meaty roles back in in the 30s and 40s you don't see those same kind of roles happening for a while as there becomes a, a shift toward male driven pictures. Not that those weren't around in some fashion, but I feel like the balance shifts For considerably sure. at post-war. 
Oh yeah, I mean, and also Hays Code. I mean, I think there's there's been studies yeah. about how like just the sheer number of women incidentally in jobs in the 30s in film and in 20s and 30s that that kind of peaks and then and then drops out when you know the the Christian League and the Hays Code all get involved and start laying out which is and is not a woman's role. Um, you know, women used to be judges in movies in like the 20s and 30s. Like there was, and how many His Girl Friday fellow reporters that are out bantering and doing their thing. And then like that just kind of goes away and it becomes, you know, you're, you're a chanteuse, you're singing in the, in the lounge or you're a housewife or you're an ingenue or you're a mom, but you know, you're not, you're not a judge anymore. And there's, there's a, you know, pre-code, there's, there's much more uh, sexual liberation too that you feel um, uh, uh, Marlena Dietrich, great example of that, Mae West. There's until in the early thirties, which is also just such a, a wild West of, of cinema wherever and we're gonna we're gonna get right to this in the next episode but where where you're you're trying to you're already trying to figure out a new medium you're trying to learn sound and you're trying to layer that in and and cinema is still uh hollywood i should say hollywood hollywood and studio system is still getting their their legs by the mid-30s as they're ironing these things out and the code drops in things do start changing considerably they're overnight true but i think the other thing to consider with that is, you know, I think for the modern viewer, we're very used to when a thing is released, it's released nationally, right? Like, and if it's available, it's available. Occasionally, something is in limited release, it's only in LA, New York, or only in a handful of cities, but eventually it will be available nationwide in some format. But, you know, at the time, pre and during Hays Code, and post Hays Code, well, kind of with the end of his code, I guess, there was local censorship boards that would determine whether something would be shown in Iowa, in New York, in Alabama, in California, wherever. And so, you know, I think it's there's also an element of, we look at a movie and say it was released in 1932, therefore America saw it in 1932. But really, depending on the movie, it may not have been released in all of America in 1932, or may have been highly edited and was released in some places, but not in other places, or was released with 20 minutes missing based on the censor board or even um, just like the local projectionist may say, uh, no, this this kind of thing does not happen in my theater and would snip out, you know, a scene or two and just be like, it's gone. And so like, local versions of films also existed and it was very patchwork up until the 50s and 60s. Yeah, that's a that's a really excellent point too. It's um it's we've come we've we've come so far and the and the the cinema landscape then it can be uh it can be hard to like transport yourself and shake off some of the modern notions that you've got of how we experience movies. So somewhere through through all of this, we um, we we arrive at at the the classic noir era of the forties and fifties, and and the the femme fatale begins to firm up as we as we understand her. 
uh, we're going to be looking in great detail at that throughout the, the course of the season. We've got a lot of, uh, of examples plucked from, from the 40s and 50s that we're going to be going over in the weeks to come. Uh, I'm very excited for how deep of a dive we're going to take into that. Uh, but, but before we, we even get to that, from your, your prior knowledge that you're bringing in, Fred, how, how do we get there? What's, what, how, do, how do we arrive at that, at that, uh, that femme fatale figure that, has, that, that is what we all, the archetype that we all think of whenever we hear that word? Personally, before we do this deep dive, like I said, from where I'm at right now, I feel like a lot of it is going to come to back to um, male anxiety about women in the workplace, right? That we're talking about World War II, men are being drafted, are going off to serve, women are entering the workforce. And I think there is a, a perceived threat by men in this new arrangement and that that you know and i you know i think there's a, a a latent latent misogyny that did not need a lot of prodding to to come out but i think that that uh is sort of the trigger that helps uh kind of kick off the noir era and then um the other thing is that we're talking about crime movies right so it's it's not like somebody just went oh i'm gonna make a a woman's picture but it's she's going to kill somebody it's like well it's a crime picture and people are going to die and so if my male protagonist is a suffering fool then who who best to tempt him than than a woman um so i think it is i think it is sort of like this the societal uh trends intersecting with the needs of the genre and the genre conventions that gives birth to the femme fatale it's re it's going to be really interesting contrasting um, the different types of, uh, of of protagonists that are going up against our our femme fatales throughout the the run of this because uh, because you know knowing where we're going to begin at we've got we um, these are these are are a bunch of poor fools where we where we start with uh, with our uh, with our early examples and that and that bunch of chumps. That version of masculinity is going to change considerably from film to film as we move along. Uh, but uh, but yeah, the, these these men in some of our early goings are are just run over by the women. Yeah, but I also feel like as much as the men are going to change, I think the women are going to change more, and that that's where we're going to really see. You know, we talked about it a little bit with the private detective, and that there was by the end, the millennial idea had kind of started to shift what a detective looked like on screen with the last you know with, with movies released this century but uh i think the femme fatale is going to be a lot more responsive to changes and trends in society and that's going to be the, one of the really interesting things to track here is how how she shifts how the how she becomes more and less sympathetic over time even becoming the protagonist, like by the time we get to neo-noir, we're going to start having movies that are like really about the femme fatale as the lead character, which is going to be really interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited. There's going to be a clear, uh, as we're, as we're looking ahead toward our season, um, there's going to be a pretty clear break between, between the front and back halves as we, 
as we abandon the, the classic era and move ahead and, and see all the different offshoots of this. And I, one thing I flagged that, I, and I think this is, this is gonna be the gap, like, right? This is, this is the, the difference in, in that time. There, there's like a, a dead zone in the 60s for this. And, and I blame James Bond in part, <laughs> obviously not solely, but um, when I think about the, the, the Bond girl Example, you know, these are these are not noirs, right? There, but they they We've certainly about the, are the close relationship yeah, and in the pulpy source for both both uh, trends, yeah. And, and certainly, some some of the classic Bond girls are they're they're tied up in danger and they're distractions for Bond. But I uh, um, I I feel like that particular franchise just had such a so it has such a defined place that 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 the the bond girl occupied and it and it became such a big force in how big ticket hollywood cinema for sure. a long time it takes quite a while before you get any examples of of bond girls in the femme fatale mode that are legitimately uh complicated characters sure well i think i mean i think also that's just the period when noir in general kind of really died out and it was a fallow period too when we looked at the, at the private eye. But I think you I think you are right that there is, yeah, the femme fatale kind of becomes subsumed into pure male power fantasy, right? And sexual fantasy. Like thinking about private detective movies we watched last season from the 60s and late, late 50s, you know, so we're thinking about Mike Hammer and Lou Harper and yeah, none of those women are dangerous. They're just sexual no. objects for him to, for the, the detective to move through. No, and that's part of as you as you trade off and as 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 movies become for for so long, um, it's so long. It's the male, just male dominated and the male action hero. Whether whether it's in a spy movie or in um, or in uh, Western or whether it's Steve McQueen or um, or Paul Newman, right? But you just the the era of of the women's picture and of of the strong uh, female uh, classic female uh, actresses of of Hollywood's golden years, like they're they're all in the rearview mirror at this point, and uh, and, and it takes a little while for for things to branch off and and uh, and the femme fatale to find footing in some new new corners of cinema but she does yeah. and, and and we're gonna have a really fun back half of the season with all of these different pockets that we can explore uh, i suppose um just for, for our own influences where um what what were your earliest impressions of the femme fatale where where does where, where does she kind of enter your your consciousness it definitely lines up with like Private detective entering my consciousness from a like uh, pastiche uh, through. I, uh, to me, uh, the one that comes to mind is uh, Guy Noir as part of uh, the Perignon oh, Companion. Sure. Of course. So, yeah. like you know, Guy Noir was a pastiche of the hard-boiled detective, and he frequently tangled with the pastiche of a femme fatale who was all ridiculous double entendres and breathy dialogue, and um, well, and so well, you know. Well, I, uh, what about Jessica Rabbit? Jessica Rabbit too, for sure. Yeah. Um, 
but you know, so these are these are things that are playing with the iconography and commenting on it rather than being it. So definitely by the time I started actually watching really classic femme fatale movies in my 20s, uh, it, it had been, I was coming to it from that perspective of like knowing the tropes rather than experiencing the story um, first. Yeah, and I think that's, that's just how we encounter so much classic content. Oh, yeah. I mean, the first anyway. time I learned of Citizen Kane and Rosebud was through Tiny Toon Adventures because they did a whole spoof on <laughs> on it. And, I, yeah, that's um, just... I, yeah. I, I'm almost almost certainly the same. Honestly, almost certainly exactly the same is true uh, because I'm pretty sure that there was... There, I'm, I'm not misremembering. There was some kind of Maltese Falcon like riff and tiny buried in tiny tunes somewhere. Right. Probably. Um, but it's Warner um, brothers. I, I mean, it, even in, in Istanbul, not Constantinople, even in that music video, there's the, there's, there's the statue moving around and, uh, and, and that is at some level uh, <laughs> a riff on it, I guess. But, um, but I, I encountered Maltese Falcon super early on and and mary esther and you know that's like that's in my head that's a as a as a legitimate original example but even then i still came to that having already had some cartoon immersion in it thanks to you know tiny tunes or looney tunes or wherever well you know what uh, obviously like peter laurie impressions in in looney tunes go hand in hand and and the, these things are just stuff you're spoon fed from from the time you consume any media right no i mean that's and that's sort of a general right like state of state of being is mm -hmm. all of the major cultural touchstones you know if you watch the simpsons you've already ingested some kind of commentary on it before you encounter it directly so were there any any film noir or or tangential texts that that you you consume where where like like this was the genuine artifact like this this person was the embodiment of the femme fatale for you double indemnity for sure for sure i mean that's for that sure. is i think like in the same way that not to the same degree but in the same way that bogart set the groundwork i think double indemnity does a lot of like this is the springing off point for the femme fatale um yeah, uh, I can't. I can't fault that, and I love. I love some Stanwyck, um, and I and Rita Hayworth um, singing "Put the Blame on Mame" and Gilda is just like that's that's like to me just such a a, a classic femme fatale moment. The, you mm -hmm. know, you want you, the nightclub, the um, uh, the 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 chanteuse. It just all it it. It, that like that is such an indelible image to me um but i'm also a massive marlena dietrich fan so she's just kind of um always like hanging there as as uh the as one as certainly one of the first and one of the defining examples of a of a of a woman who um who has a a, a great mastery of her presence on screen mm. um and 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 uses it to her full advantage. Uses, knows how to command every moment of your attention whenever she's she's on screen. Um, and the other one I would 
The other, and this is so minor, and we're not even going to cover this 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 film, or it's not a minor film, but um, I I love Gloria Graham, and I love The Big Heat, and and to me, her character in The Big Heat is just uh, is is complex, is tragic, is um, her performance is fantastic. It's it's just such a memorable role, uh, and that's that's one of my all-time favorite performances and and favorite uh characters in film noir uh no i can't believe I have, she's one i'm always like oh, i wish she'd just gotten a better deal yeah because um, she is she's always fantastic when she pops up so love her love in a lonely place love the big heat she's she's just so it's a wonderful life yes <laughs> this whole thing uh, and actually, we'll see her in this in the series in uh, Human Desire. That's right. That's right. Uh, so yeah, I'm and, and uh, okay. The, this is uh, this is a good lead into. Uh, I one thing I like about about tackling the femme fatale this year is that even though we covered a, a whole range of detectives and some really great ones, inevitably. Uh, it felt like everyone is judged in some level against Bogart. Um, he's he's just such a, a dominating factor, even through through just a small handful of of actual private detective performances. But he leaves such an impression, and no one is Bogart, and everyone is reacting to Bogart in some level. Um, you know, you can be skewing away from him, but but he just he he was the the embodiment of of the PI. <laughs> Uh, whereas we have, uh, we, we have a whole host of different, uh, great classic leading ladies that are all stepping into these femme fatale roles and all bringing something new and taking it in a different direction. And, and, you know, when we inevitably list off our favorites, I think we're going to see a lot more variety a lot, and a, a, a lot more change in how, you know, how we how we ultimately position people among our favorites because there's just no one to just suck all that attention away like Bogart does. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is just the sample size, right? That like, for as much as the private detective has defined uh, an aspect of the the film noir, there's no, there wasn't that many of them, right? Like looking at when we went through and indexed everything and, and really, we covered most of the detective like detective centric stories from the classic noir period there was there was a handful that we didn't get to and then there's some more in the neo noir post noir era but we really covered it pretty thoroughly we're going to be doing a couple more episodes this season and we're still having to cut dozens of movies that would have been interesting to talk about and we've got classics piled on classics here. There's there's some heavy hitting episodes coming uh, coming up this season, and uh, and and we had those in, in with the private detective for sure. Uh, but you know, we... it was yeah. There just wasn't it wasn't as deep of a field, and um, mm -hmm. and I think part of that is in the same way that the femme fatale has a lot of flexibility as the character. The as compared to the private detective, the um, it, it also provides a lot of flexibility as to the story and 
where it's set, what it's about. Uh, you know, the femme fatale can intersect anywhere along the crime spectrum and cause all sorts of different story mishaps, whereas the private detective is something has gone wrong and you're bringing somebody in to solve it. And that's sort of like the beginning and end of, of what that, for a detective-focused story, what it could be. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good call out. We're going to see some vastly different kinds of stories un, unfold here. Uh, and, 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 you know, as, as always throughout this, the goal is going to be like, how, how, how does this all carry on? And once we abandon the, the, the classic era uh, in the, the back half of the season, uh, you know, how does this still um, feel like a continuation in some way of noir? And I think as we as we put some thought to the the roadmap of our season where we're going with it, I think we've we've got some really strong through lines as we as we fan out and go global with it and 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 take us into the modern era. Uh, yeah, it definitely winds up some some like eras to move through, even within the neo noir, and and in the same way with the detect with the the private eye season. There's some really fun pairings that I think we've found to to dig into. Agreed, and I'm 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 also curious just on a on a broad sense. I don't I don't think we had like pinned this down at this point in in our in our mapping out of the the private detective. But looking back, it, it just became so clear how much uh, everything everything seemed in reaction to a few key texts and mm. yes bogart is a as a presence so maltese falcon and the big sleep obviously but then china chinatown big lebowski these um these these movies became so vital uh, they became a lens through which every other filmmaker after that was was somehow interpreting their their version of the detective uh, i don't i don't think we're going to see that quite there's obviously periods here but i don't think uh, I don't think we're going to quite see that 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 same reaction, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, no, maybe I think you already disagree. No, I think you're right. I mean, for example, thinking about the like, the, I think the erotic thriller is going to be the right. clearest period. Huge period. Can't ignore it. Even that. I mean, that is coming off of uh, you know that that's spurred on by Fatal Attraction. Like that is the one of the primary kickoffs for the like the real erotic thriller. I mean, yeah, yeah, you can trace I, I it back you, to like body to, heat in the body heat and, twice and, and, and you, uh, there's there, there's certainly things that lead right that you can see where where it's moving into that for sure. But like the Joe Esterhouse uh, effect and like Michael Douglas and I mean, I, like Fatal Attraction sort of sets the framework for a lot of that, but. It's not a, like that. Uh, and, we're not talking about it because it doesn't really feel like a, a neo noir in the same way that like Basic Instinct takes from Fatal Attraction and pairs it with a lot of the more noir elements. And and, and oh no, go ahead. No, no, no. no. Um, and similarly, I, I, a a Titanic force in in the more modern shape of of the femme fatale is david lynch and 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 yet he is so hard to imitate uh you know people try and 
and it doesn't and, and you can see his influence ripple through plenty but like he, he just has a particular way of handling his um his female characters that that is that that it is both classic and modern and dreamlike and his own his own brand that no one else can quite pull off. Um, I also feel like things like Blue Velvet um, help open the door for uh, for the erotic thriller in in that it pushes the envelope in a way and it gets it gets audiences accustomed to uh, abandoning safer narratives. No, no, I think that's. Um... Yeah, but you're right. It, I think it just goes to your point that it is a sort of more diffuse uh, series of resets and reinventions that happen rather than, like you said, with the detective, the one thing and then everything else is a reaction to that for like the next 20 to 30 years. And then there's another one thing and then it resets again. Um, no, I was also thinking about the. there is one movie in the 60s, which we are skipping again, even though it is one of the greatest movies of all time, Vertigo. 50s. 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 58. Yes. Uh, 58. So, you know, and again, it's like, it is both a reinvention. I mean, it's reinvention of the, the, it took, it took so much from noir, right? Like the PI, the femme fatale, but mix it up with a bunch of Hitchcockian obsessions and became its own thing that we were still kind of holding off and, waiting for the right season to explore. But I think yeah. it does need to be acknowledged as, as part of that lineage, right? It, it totally does. And and also, it reminded me that I bookmarked that at some point this season, multiple times this season, I'm going to gripe about the fact that we are, um, we are reviewing a uh, Brian De Palma film before we review a Hitchcock film for this podcast. <laughs> but, um, but that's all right. Uh, we could just do uh, what's his uh, direct Vertigo knockoff obsession, not knockoff, but remake uh, homage oh. obsession, right? Uh, we could just do we could do that doubleheader yeah. and yeah. and slip that in there. Uh, no, um, but there is there's totally going to be a place for Vertigo and for and for Hitchcock in in the in these conversations down the line. Uh, Vertigo just feels like like there's a future season on on. Um, obsession and on voyeurs, and uh, that yes. this, this is going to fit and this become be much pure more Hitchcock of a and, Plama, and I'm going to have a great time, and you're going to hate half of it. We can find no, it, yeah. if, we want, if we're marathoning De Palma, if we can find a way to watch Phantom of the Paradise, then we'll at least catch the one of his I like. <laughs> uh, you heathen! Uh, uh, but no, I yeah, I think there's like what hitchcock and his icy blondes do i think is also important even though we're not going to look at any of them this season but i feel like that is a, an influence especially when you get to the like post Palma, you know the modern era stuff that we're going to be looking at i feel like it's a lot of ice in their veins femme fatales who are cast in that mold right like Gone Girl, mm -hmm. side effects, decision to leave. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I'm I, I'm so curious how um, uh, where where we end with our discussion because man, we left the the detective in a sad state <laughs> as of as of where we we arrived at at the end of the season and and I'm 
and, and I don't, uh, even though I'm, even though the the films we've got selected for later on, I'm I'm uh, I'm fairly familiar with, uh, but but I still feel like I've I, like I don't have my thoughts together on I don't know the the, the full journey up till now of the film Fatale. I'm I'm looking forward to that unfold. No, I I agree. I was in a conversation relatively recently with somebody about I think we were talking about Body Heat, and he was saying how he. And he was, he, this is the guy who's like a film lover, but he's another 10 years younger than me. And he was saying like, he, he could not get into body heat because he just sort of on a molecular level rejected the femme fatale. And he was just sort of like, you can't, the, the character archetype does not make sense in the modern context that like you can't. Boy, where are we on fourth wave feminism? Like you it just isn't from his point of view it was incompatible and that you could not hmm. like having an archetype that's based purely off of women using sexual appeal is uh, the modern viewer has a real difficult time with it and that there's not a, a hunger in the marketplace for such a, a framing either from men I, or from I think, women i think park chan woo uh does uh, <laughs> uh does his darndest to prove that otherwise but uh but i mean i'm I'm talking specifically like the u.s yes you know western but uh, and i don't think that that's like a hundred percent but i do think that that there is something to that right that that is like uh i don't know could could you do the postman always rings twice i mean i guess they the postman always rings twice i guess they did do uh the man who knew too much or not too much the man who wasn't there a very different movie. The man who wasn't there, but that was still like twenty years ago. Yeah, and I think there's there's certainly uh, even though we're not going to get into it, there there's certainly some analyzing how the the Cohen brothers, who are just so steeped in the in crime as as part of their their movies, even if they're not necessarily um, uh, that you know they they may be drawing in in part on noir, uh, but um, I think how they use how they use their their female characters, femme fatale or not, uh, you know, debatably. Is I think there they're... a Cohen's femme fatale? I guess um, blood simple. I mean, yeah, like you can argue there's, there's mean, she... Maud Lebowski getting to have some, some touches of that, but she's not ultimately. I mean, no, uh, I, I guess. Yeah. Mm. It's no, it's all, it, it's all, Fairly, I mean, it's a it's like a gesture to rather right. than a exactly. substantive portion of, but you know, I, but I am kind of like, would blood simple is she's, but no, she's not trying to get him to kill her husband. It's 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 the setup of, um, the postman always drinks twice, but instead the restaurant owner is like, I'm going to kill the. Or I'm gonna get the evidence and the it all gets twisty and turny. Yeah. So I guess she's there's not also, really a femme fatale. There's more. There's more to pull on from um, from the Fargo TV series. Um, well, sure, and, but that's not. Uh, that's obviously not not Cohen not Cohen specific, but um, uh, but everything leads to, to whatever's next, I guess. Um. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm I'm I'm. Cannot wait to get to the more modern context to um, to you know see where we're where we're currently standing. 
depending on our our femme fatale. I'm yeah, also I don't think it's really, impossible, but I think it is. No. It does need like you have to you have I, to be smart about reinventing the femme fatale to make it work in the modern context. And I think that's part yeah. of what is so successful about Gillian Flynn, right? Is that she has figured out how to make bad women be entertaining and be the the main characters and the focuses of her stories um that like honors their that both allows them to be to use their sexuality but also allows them to be uh, even more layered and complex than the classic noir era yeah i um i i, I mean I, we can't ignore yeah gone girl is just such a pivotal a pivotal film in that regard for from the last decade and uh probably the the one that that other narratives are all kind of working their way around it's still it's still so recent that it's hard to say like what the lasting effects of of it are but i do think it shows um it shows the direction uh, there is direction for the femme fatale moving yeah, well, i mean i think it did spark essentially a new noir resurgence resurgence with female protagonists based off of books of course but Definitely. right the girl the woman on the the woman in the window the girl on the train mm -hmm. like all those that are but they're not most of them are not femme fatale riffs right because it is that like is she likable question i think and the um a lot of the other ones are drawing from other noir like the voyeur the patsy but instead of it being a man, it's a woman, and kind of taking it from there. Where, but the and, um, and all of that's overlapping. I think is a little bit more complicated, and and is willing to be like the the women are bad, but they're interesting, and that's what's going to bring us a, a reader slash viewer along. Yeah, and I feel like in the mo in the modern context, you can't overlook the the. The overlapping Venn diagrams between that and then the the true crime um, uh, fascination that's sure. that's really sparked in the last ten years. That my that, favorite the, murder the, in, in company. Those, those viewer bases are just so so wrapped up in one another that that they're they're very much catering toward the same thing. That's fair, and I think there is still uh, we've been rewatching the Mission Impossible movies. Uh, to get ready for the new one and just finished. I haven't seen any since the first. Wow. I've not seen the Brian a De Palma one. I have not, I've only seen the Brian De Palma one. <laughs> I mean, my point of view is the best one. I doubt you'd agree with that, but, um, and there's some uh, other really good ones, but I did, I did. Hey, we, we set your bachelor party in, in part in the Drake hotel. Uh, so no, actually, I'm 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 all right with the first Mission Impossible. I I don't have anything against it. <laughs> uh, but you don't love up. it. I don't love it, but it's still entertaining. It it is like a beautiful piece of cinema. But um, it's also we'll, been we'll, at least we'll talk to Plumma. Yes. At the uh, end of this. Anyway, where I was going with this is that <laughs> Rebecca Ferguson, in her introduction, is absolutely treated as a femme fatale within the spy mold, right? That like. Mm she's you're not sure which side she's on she is pulling ethan hunt into this narrative etc cetera, etc cetera. um and the movie kind of like emphasizes her attractiveness in a way that it hadn't really done with a lot of its female characters 
in the series before and that's you know that's also like a function of so many different directors taking a hand at the wheel any all of which is to say like the archetype still pops up but i think it you do like i said you need to be smart these days about how you're using it because going back to the the comment my my friend was making about i think it's you know that his point is that like if you define the character if it's it's the only primary female character and you're defining her purely on her ability to use her sexual prowess to like get things done then that feels pretty reductive in the modern cinema ecosystem but if you do if you can have more female characters so that you're encompassing a full spectrum of you know identity and experience and or if you can make it so that her sexuality is just one of the tools that she uses and she is also actively progressing the story directly and not just indirectly through a male sap like Jillian Flynn is doing with Gone Girl or like with um, Rebecca Ferguson in in uh, Rogue Nation, you know, that makes it more palatable to the modern audience. So you just you just can't do what you can't play the hits. You got to come up with some new riffs on the hits. No, and 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 that's that's a, a wonderful thing. You need to you need to evolve other otherwise uh, otherwise you get things like Marlowe, right? Where where playing playing the hits has diminishing returns, right? Um, so uh, I am uh, I one thing you mentioned there that I am going to be looking for throughout this season. Uh, my my impression of classic noir is that it's very rare for our femme fatale figures to be interacting with other women throughout um they're largely defined by by the men that are surrounding them the men that are are uh that that are objectifying them the men that they are using however it plays out it's the smurfette but, effect you know yeah. it's papa it's, smurf and this smurf and that smurf and the lady smurf you know, we're gonna we're gonna keep a, a close tab on how the male gaze is playing out through through each of these movies that we progress through. But I'm 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 really interested in just how the the narrative stacks the deck, and when, you know, when are we gonna are when are are we gonna see these uh, when are we gonna see other um, other women working their way into the narratives in in more meaningful capacities? What uh, you know, this is not all. This is not to say that all classic film noir are going to be awful at this, but I do suspect that it, it's it, it, it's more or less what we remember, right? <laughs> there, these these women are largely defined by the men that they are are put up against, and and that's what we're going to be working with for a little while. Yeah, I mean, and I think you know, this point has come up a few times. Uh, one of the things that I'm really looking forward to is the. Um, when we get to the neo-noir, post-noir era, there's a lot in there that I haven't seen, and I'm excited to get to those films and see that change and see more, you know, more women on screen. And not to say that the early movies aren't great. You know, obviously we love them, and that's why we're doing this this series. And we've got some great movies to to revisit. But personally, I like a lot of the ones in our post like post 1970 that we've got on our list are the ones that I have not watched yet. And, and 
I fall into the trap again of being like, well, I'm going to watch it for the podcast. So I'm going to hold off on, on getting to it. Um, so it's, it'll be good to finally get a chance to, to watch some of these, these titles. We have, we have a handful of my very favorite movies. Uh, oh, you were campaigning so hard for Chungking Express. You were like, I'm going to find a way to make an episode out of this. Yes. Um, which I suppose, I suppose I, I suppose I could, could also fall into a cop season later on too but uh but i think i think here i think it i think we've got a way to make it uh make it really yeah work we get a bridget lynn doubleheader out of it so you can't really complain and moholland drive um is one of my my all-time favorites so got some good I'm things coming up looking forward to revisiting that that's one that i've always i don't know that movie is not my favorite lynch movie like i like it i don't have any problems with it but i I'm excited to revisit it, and I hope that it finally unfolds for me in a way that allows me to love it as much as so many other people do. Because I love Lynch, and I like it, but I don't know. It's never been his I just, best I just finished Twin Peaks, The Return. Uh, and, oh, how, I, I mean, how how did that get made? More My than any other... My favorite 18-hour movie. Yeah. I mean, more... I can't... I. I, I cannot believe that such an object can even exist. It, I mean, they were like, Showtime has like 900,000 subscribers or whatever. And they're like, this is going to be uncut lynched. I'm like, there's not, I guarantee you the Venn diagram of subscribers and, and people who are like, yes, oh uncut lynch. Uh, <laughs> but it, I'm glad they made it. You know, this is, uh, I think we talked, I think I brought this up on, the, on here before, but somebody, uh, a film critic that I follow was like, the Twin Peaks, The Return, and Too Old to Die Young are both like peak auteur streaming. That was the moment where everybody was like, okay, we've gone too far giving these weirdos, because oh. they both made like, you know, 10 episode, 18 hour, like it's one movie, just extreme uh, exercises in auteurism I that I'm like, this is for me and me alone. And there's no way there's enough people who want to watch this to justify the money spent on it, but that, I'm glad it's it like happened. The, the more extreme, I, I, I'll always point to Hannibal season three as the strangest thing that I think ever was on network television. Oh, for sure. And, uh, and like, like, like to me, like the fact that that was on network TV is one of the most confusing things that I, ca I can't process that. That's not supposed to happen. But, but obviously <laughs> the return pushes that uh, in a totally new direction. I mean, what a piece of... Oh. I, I need to rewatch re watch Twin Peaks sometime yeah. soon. And it's not There's too much stuff to watch. It's, it, you know, obviously slightly off topic, but not completely off topic. Lynch Lynch has uh, has, has plenty of femme fatales laced throughout his his works. Um, and he'll be coming up throughout this season. Uh, I mean, Blue Velvet is another one that we could definitely mm -hmm. be covering in this, but we're not. There's just too many good titles. I mean, from the... 1940 to 1958 alone there's a solid 10 15 movies that we talked about doing and didn't do that would have also been really great to talk about and and like not not just slight films but but like it was tough we we were it was an agonizing process trimming ourselves down to uh to this nice tight 24 episode season <laughs> Yeah, I was. I've been thinking about it. Like we've we've talked about um, potentially doing our our big sci-fi horror fantasy, you know, like genre meets noir next. But I'm like, that's going to be thirty episodes. Like I think 
I think after this, we should we'll need to take a break and just do some like quick and easy, you know, boxers or reporters or just something that's got like a handful of titles that that encompass the full thing and, and get gets across and and save the another like huge season like this because because I mean and, and it makes sense because we're digging into the two like truly foundational elements of noir. Yeah. Not that every movie has to have one or the other. Obviously, there's plenty for us to cover that have neither. But, you know, these are when when we talk about the pastiche of of um, that we grew up with of noir, it inevitably had these two things like this was how you knew easily that you were in a noir world. Yeah, Um, I'm beyond excited for for the weeks to come as we really start to dive in here. Um, do you have any thoughts as we kind of wrap the, this introductory episode up? Just, I'm, I'm excited to dig back in. I, I think we've got another great lineup here and, uh, and I'm with you. I'm really curious to see where it takes us by the end and what, what we actually decide or not decide, but what our feelings and conclusions are about, where the femme fatale is now and where, where it's left to go. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be fun. Um, we're, we're glad to have y'all along for the journey. Uh, thanks for, for listening to us and, uh, and letting us kind of process our thoughts on this classic archetype over, uh, over the course of a whole bunch of episodes here. It's going to be a lot of fun. So, uh, what's that? That brings us to our uh, our classic segment. Yes, uh, Fred, in honor of Kiss Me Deadly. What's in the box? What's something you've recently watched that is so good it deserves to be glowing in that suitcase? Uh, yeah, so I've been reading um, something to do with death, which is the biography of uh, Sergio Leone, oh. and. So while reading that, I've been uh, watching. Uh, mainly, I was taking a dive into the um, Fistful trilogy, uh, mm-hmm. No Name trilogy. He gets better with each one, and the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is uh, incredible. Like I, I uh, he is so bombastic that you just kind of get swept up in the pure iconography of what he's doing. Um, like I put him up there with. Uh, uh, Oh, what's his name? Uh, Jodorowsky, in terms of just like elemental imagery that's operating on a pure semiotic level, where it's just like signifier and signified and uh, and sign are all in alignment. And it, it, the words don't matter. The story doesn't matter. It is, it is just image and, and vibe I mean, um, he, he, he has such a command of the canvas by the time he gets to good the bad and the ugly and i don't know where you stand on this but i am of the mind that leans leans a bit more toward uh once upon a time in the west even yes. over over good the bad i would and the give ugly. it i'd give once upon a time in the west like they're both fantastic but i would definitely go once upon a time in the west i think it just gets better with each one it's right. once upon a time in the west just, just like like him perfecting yes. the crowd and really perfecting it, perfecting it in, in a way that even, even Kubrick could may, may not approach. Right. Like it's just such, 
um, formal precision. Yes. In all all things. So yeah, no. So good, and bad, the more, ugly. The Morricone score. Uh, oh well, that know. too. I mean, it's like yeah. you know, there's so much, so much that's perfect in that movie. Um, the the one tragedy is that uh, the tragedy might be too strong of a word, but the one the one uh, problem is that uh, the only available version to stream is cropped. It is uh, sixteen by nine. But that's then, absolutely a tragedy. I'm that like, what is, <laughs> what is the point? Fortunately, I own them on physical media and could watch the intended widescreen, um, you know, oh my goodness. One, two, 2.35. But like, yeah, I was just watching. I was like, I, I started watching. I was like, this isn't, this isn't right. <laughs> Why am I missing so much of the screen? I mean, at least I guess it's not like a, you know, um, like a VHS, like uh, four by three complete, <laughs> but still it's not good. And I'm like, this is, this shouldn't be like, there's no reason for it to, I mean, I'm sure there's some dumb, like the rights to this version of the print is owned by the company that's licensing it to Tubi or whatever. And the version that is, that has the correct widescreen format is licensed to somebody or whatever, but the, the correct aspect ratio is not available to stream anywhere. So uh, physical media, these companies don't care about you. They don't care about the art. They will uh, shit down your throat. They will put everybody as a creator. They will take down the things that you love by physical media. Own it forever. They will, they will go in and change things in a digital version that you already own and bought. Like that's, you know, that's, you, you may buy something, quote unquote, from iTunes, but you're uh, you're um, actually just kind of have like a 99 year lease and they will go in and change it if they want. That's physical wild. media. It's so depressing. That's really um, what's in the box. Physical media. I um I, I just go see things in theaters. <laughs> with... That works too. Which is what, which is where mine. I, I went to see. Uh, I, I believe when, whenever one of your favorite movies is playing in the theater, you uh, you go see it. And uh, and and last night I uh, I saw Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, um, which is um, which controversial opinion time is my favorite Miyazaki. I mean that's uh, wrong. That is a wrong, factually wrong statement. It's a it's a close call, um, and I do adore Spirited Away. um, But uh, I mean, it's like don't get me wrong. I enjoy that movie a lot. That is like it bottom tier Miyazaki. I am I am here to argue that it is his best movie, and and more more than oh no oh my goodness, and like like first off, the world is literally on fire, and this is a movie that that more so than any other movie uh is is certainly it's foundational for miyazaki but even more than mononoke this is like his movie about um about ecological doom and about what we can do in the face of it and and it's um and it's it's about it's got a reasonably simple story but one the scenes of flight are like watching them for the first time because I can't think of a movie that precedes it in cinema that 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 goes to such heights and those kind of vistas. 
as a science fiction movie, which I w- really wish Miyazaki would have done more of, given given how fascinating the world of Nausicaa is. But there's just I, I there's not a lot of other sci-fi movies that operate in that same far future kind of zone that that Nausicaa does. And I really love that setting. And yet nothing else, like, there's nothing else that comes close to touching that in in other science fiction uh, that uh, for films. We had a uh, when we play Numenera, uh, that's that's kind of that like mm. that kind of setting, right? Yeah. But I um I love that. I love Joe Hisashi's score. I, um, I and I just, I just love that this movie so unabashedly is, um, is like care for your damn planet, care until it wears yourself out. Um, that that you have these these supposedly grotesque bugs that are that are really um, uh, when you compare them to the the gargantuan. Um, hideous warplanes and airships coming in that are destroying the landscape and the and the soldiers in masks and it's just like 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 watching what people have done to the world and continue to do to it i find it so damn heartbreaking and i love that movie so much Uh, and just to uh, even putting aside the fact that you see everything else that miyazaki does grow from there but um it i i will stand up for it as as one of my very favorite movies of all time those are all true things about that movie. It's still not his best. <laughs> well, I, full stop. I love, I love Miyazaki. I love, I love Totoro, Porco Rosso, Kiki, Mononoke, Spirited Away. I mean, like, um, um, Nausicaa, Castle. Nausicaa, Spirited Away, and then probably for me, Porco Rosso, but maybe Totoro, but maybe Mononoke in the next. I don't know. I don't know. You're it's fool. All, it, I love Castle in the Sky. I love. I, they're all great. They're all wonderful. Um, um, hey, what did you I, did you watch? Uh, Asteroid City. I did watch Asteroid City. Had a good time with it. I really liked it. Um, I think I cooled on it a little, a little bit more after when I first loved it. When I first watched it, I was not high on it, but I was like, yeah, that's 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 near the top of Anderson. I think I cooled a little. Um, right. I did see your ranking. You put it like mid mid pack. Yeah, um, I mean, but but I I adore I adore Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, I truly love that movie, and I and I think that uh, Moonrise Kingdom um, and Royal Tenenbaums and and to a slightly lesser extent, Fantastic Mr. Fox are all top tier movies. Also, yeah, I I think I liked it more than you, based on our letterbox ratings. Um, yeah, and I actually wanted to ask you because I read your. Um... Okay, what was your what was your number one? Um, uh, was was Grand Budapest Hotel? Oh, Grand Budapest. Okay, so then what was? Oh, my cryptic letterbox. Yeah, I was trying to decide. There was one that I was like, I'm not sure what this uh, one is. Okay, I. I don't know which one. Oh, so then what was the uneven post-war on we? Oh, is that the um, um, oh, French Dispatch? Okay, duh. Okay, that makes more sense. All right, <laughs> right. Because I was like, I yeah. Okay, that makes way more sense. Okay, great. Um, French. I, I think French Dispatch is fine, but very uneven. Yes, I agree. Uh, no, I think Asteroid City is like almost too clever by half. And if it was anybody else, it would like collapsed in on itself like a souffle but um 
I think he pulls it off. I'd probably rank it just a little bit higher than you in his filmography. Um, but I clear, agree. It's still almost, it's still pretty close to my favorite film of the year. There's not, oh, been right. I mean, it's still like, you know, we're talking past, past lives has got top spot at the moment. Um, not, not, not to watch past lives. but, but it's my, it's my favorite so far. Yeah. No, I mean, we're talking like a body of work, you know, yeah. we're talking about an outdoor like Wes Anderson. You're like, okay, well, you know, his good movie is the best movie that somebody else has ever made. Um, right. But no, yeah, it's it's like I I think it it it's like a little too intellectual I think to hit the heights of uh, Grand Budapest, but it's still or Royal Tenenbaums, but it's uh, yeah I think there's just there, there's um, there's a, there's so much um there, there's so much tragedy that that emerges from Grand Budapest and Royal Tenenbaums, and it's like there in Asteroid City, but I don't think it's quite as potent as it is in, in those it, other like it, it never quite like those two movies that trauma and that tragedy is in the background and then all of a sudden it coalesces into like a very specific moment mm-hmm. where that just hits you like a sledgehammer and i think the like when he leaves the when everything goes goes wild and he like exits out the back and, and talks to margot robbie i but think it's supposed to it's a great scene. And I think it's supposed to be the moment that like hits you like that, but I think it's still too intellectualized to like really because there's just so many layers of of I mean it's layers of artifice, but that, like that's what you get with Anderson. But like it, it's it's you have to do a little bit more math than in those other two where it's like oh all of a sudden all it cuts through all the artifice and it's just like but really life gets you. It's it just it's more of a balancing act, too, with with those kind of ballooning casts that that he assembles, and mm. and it works so well in Grand Budapest because despite the fact that that cast is massive, just Ray, Ray Fiennes and Tony Revolori are such a, a through line mm-hmm. uh, that 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 everything can can ground in them, um, whereas. Um, whereas there's just a lot going on in Asteroid City. There's so so many different threads to pull at, and and, and you know he's smart to keep a lot of focus on on Schwartzman. But um... no, that's a good point. And I think also like it's 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 a it's an internalized climax, whereas the at least from well, you know I haven't watched either of these movies and. I don't know, 10 years or whatever it's been, but um, with Grand Budapest and, and um, Royal Tenenbaums, it is dramatically enacted, right? Like, there, there is that moment of cut that breaks through is because of, like, a something happens that is externally expressed that also has an internal impact, whereas with this, it is a little bit more like it it's purely a conversation that represents like a processing of grief rather than like. So I think that I think that kind of also blunts it. And I was interested more to talk than, with you about it because I know that you you know obviously love them. More than any movie, uh, to, uh, to, I guess to articulate my my Grand Budapest love and why it works so damn well. More than any other movie I can think of, um, and it's and truly in like a literary sense that that movie uh, takes a, a century. And and it finds what what becomes a, a a breaking point and and where things 
inevitably shatter and 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 change. And you know, it's not to say that the old way is better or anything, but it's it, it really encapsulates time in a way that I that I think cinema like a, a real expanse of time years into something digestible and and movable and tragic and um and and, and it is very literary but it's still uniquely cinematic and, and very few films have that kind of ambition or scope much less success in doing it yeah yeah um we have long abandoned the femme fatale but we can yeah we could probably wrap it up here we just <sighs> Right, never, podcast fanboying over never, Wes Anderson. Never a shame talking in depth about Wes Anderson. Uh, so, thanks as always for joining us on this excavation of the darkest, grittiest of genres. You can find us online at celluloidirt.com and on Letterboxd under the handle Celluloid Dirt. Join us next time as we jumpstart this new season with a trio of classics of European cinema straddling the dawn of the sound era. As Europe enters what will prove to be a cataclysmic decade, we'll be looking at the original scapegoat for the ruination of man, the fallen woman. Until then, may your viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a strange phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend.